0: Yale Podcast
1: Network. Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. For our final episode from our Cooking Across the Black Diaspora series, we host Bryant Terry, Chef in Residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. When Bryant was on campus in February, he spoke about recipes and the ways they offer reclamation and resistance. But he also shared about how in food justice work, we can often forget that recipes are about enjoyment too. That's why his newest cookbook, Vegetable Kingdom, has song recommendations for what to listen to while you make each dish. Through his activism, award-winning cookbooks, and love for the history of Black and Afro communities, Bryant's a wonderful guest to close our series. I'm also excited to say that this episode was collaborative. Tegan Engel hosts the podcast The Table Underground, which features stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. She interviews Bryant in this episode. At a time where physical distancing means we're often staying indoors, their conversation is sure to offer something special for all of us. It could be more excitement as you cook a new dish and jam with friends or family. Or maybe it's a feeling that you're connected to something larger, to a people, to a story, that even in these messed up times where people across the food system and society at large are facing extreme pressures like never before, we can still find ways to come together.
2: Hi, Bryant.
0: Hey, Tegan, how are you?
2: I'm good, how are you doing? Doing really well. Thanks for making time in your busy schedule. For people who don't know you and your story, can you tell folks how did you get into eating a plant-based diet? How did you become vegan?
0: Well, it's interesting because you said, how did I get into a plant-based diet? And then you asked, how did I become vegan? And I feel like those are two separate questions. And I don't know if it was necessarily a plant-based diet, but I like to think that the diet I I grew up eating was um, largely vegetable-based, or you could say vegetable-forward. And it's because I spent – well, it's because that was just something that our family valued. Um, I come from a family of farmers, and – my grandparents um, migrated from the rural south to Memphis, where I grew up, and they brought with them those traditions of growing food and their agrarian knowledge and, you know, just the understanding that it's important that you be in charge of producing the food for yourself and your family. And so, you know, that was something that my grandparents passed on to most of their kids, and they had gardens. And I spent a lot of time in my um, paternal grandfather's garden when I was growing up. And I call it a garden, but it's more like an urban farm Mm. because he literally used every bit of available space to grow food. And he had chickens, he had hogs. And this is a neighborhood adjacent to downtown Memphis where, Mm. you know, it was very productive. And I um, that's what we ate from. You know, I always say that. The food that we ate was local as our backyard garden. It was always in season. And we literally would go harvest food right before making it. But in terms of me moving more towards a compassionate and um, healthful diet in, in the way that we think about them, kind of like labeling it as a vegan diet, that happened when I was in high school after I heard that um, the song Beef by Boogie Down Productions mm-hmm. and Kara S1, the MC of that group, and it was really just this wake-up call for me and i just had no idea about the violent way that our industrialized food system can treat animals and the impact that that can then have you know obviously on the animals but also on human health and the environment and um i just couldn't turn back so after hearing that song i really moved towards um more of a plant-based diet and you know i think it's important for me to always recognize that it wasn't a linear journey it wasn't like i heard that and i just stopped eating meat and i've never gone back you know um there were moments where i've eaten animal products again i mean you know case in point i was a strict vegan and then i went to study abroad in france as an undergrad and in the mid-90s it was hard to be a vegan in France, and so I was staying Butter with the yeah, I was staying with the host family, and right. they were feeding me what they ate, and so I I feel like it's important to note that because a lot of people have these purity tests, and I certainly would fail any of those purity tests, and I also think it's important for me to be transparent so that other people can just feel human right. and know that you don't have to be perfect, and know that you know you do the best you can, and sometimes you might do something differently and it's all about just waking up the next day and trying your best that day.
2: Right. Yeah. I totally feel you on that. Um, I know that history really informs your work a lot, in particular, the history of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about how both that history and other history really informs the way that you work in food.
0: Yeah. Well, I always talk about the Black Panther Party for self-defense being one of the the major or learning about the work that they were doing in the 60s and the 70s um, was really the major impetus for me deciding to do this work. And particularly their survival programs that were aimed at meeting the basic needs of people living in communities. And they had a range of programs from, you know, free clinics to ambulance service to sickle cell anemia testing. Um, the programs that Address this intersection of poverty, malnutrition, and institutional racism. Their grocery giveaways and their free breakfast for children program were the ones that inspired me to start doing um, food systems work and to become a quote unquote food justice activist. Um, but I think more than the programs, especially after having conversations with many former Black Panthers, it's really the spirit of seeing a need in a community and then just jumping into action, you know, and I really understood that we had to train a generation of young people who were equipped to make change in their communities around food systems and, and lead the change, in fact. And I always talk about how you think about many of the most powerful social movements in the 20th century, and it was young people, their energy, their brilliance, um, their fearlessness that helped these movements um, push forward. You know, we can look at the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, or the civil rights movement in the American South, And, you know, if we imagine that food justice will be one of the most hopeful movements of the 21st century, I feel like we need to make sure that we're equipping young people to be the ones who are taking the lead in the movement.
2: What was it about food that made you really feel like that was the need that you wanted to take action on?
0: Well, it was me seeing these parallels with where things were in the 60s and the Panthers addressing, you know, I think nutritional um, apartheid and understanding that hunger and poverty were issues that had to be addressed and they started the breakfast well i mean they had the grocery giveaways because people were hungry people didn't know where their next meal was going to come from and they started the free breakfast for children program because children were going to school hungry and they knew that they couldn't focus on what they were learning if they were having hunger pains and they didn't need any peer-reviewed studies that um proved the connection between like nutrition and educational and behavioral outcomes it's just like intuitive people need to I mean like if I don't eat I feel grumpy and can't think straight and so Mm -hmm. imagine being a child having to go to school without being fed and so when I I I, I tell this story about being on the subway um, going from Brooklyn to Manhattan to go to campus and you know I was TAing a class and seeing these young people on the subway at seven o'clock in the morning eating candy bars and Red hot Cheetos and drinking sodas and sugary juices and energy drinks and just realizing that these young people like that's the worst way to start their day and I know that that was just it just wasn't normal. just that day right. you know yeah. this is this is probably the way that they're eating often and so I jumped into action and I started an organization called Be Healthy that used cooking as a way to empower them and give them skills that they could take into their adult lives and help them feel more equipped to make real food, but also as a way to help them be more politicized about the food issues that directly impact them and their families. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You've written five books now. Four of them are cookbooks. And in line with what you're talking about now, what are some of the things that you do to try to help your recipes be accessible to people? Especially, you're talking about reaching out to communities that are typically marginalized or where eating plant-based or vegan diets is maybe not the normal thing that people are used to doing. Mm. What do you do to try to help people feel like this is their food? Yeah. I mean, I use a
0: lot of basic staples that I think most people would have access to. Um, You know, you think about a dish like Texas caviar, which is this kind of, play on um you know the 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 caviar the black eyed peas is something that you see in a lot of southern places and it's kind of like a imagine a pico de gallo but with um Mm -hmm. cooked black eyed peas that have been um cooled and so you know getting black eyed peas in bulk and then the other ingredients would be like red onion some cilantro maybe a little bit of fresh tomatoes and then just a vinaigrette, that's not that expensive. Like those ingredients are really cheap. And I think, you know, I feel like a lot of people, I think many people are very earnest when they talk about food being like eating healthfully being too expensive. I think it's they can't imagine, you know, being able to eat healthfully and do it within their budget. But I also have seen that it's just like kind of like this bad faith knee jerk reaction that I think some people just say as a way to just kind of like thumb their nose at people who are encouraging folks to eat more healthfully or eat more of a plant based diet. And you can eat well for cheaply. But I think you have to be strategic about it, you know. Um, And I think we need to understand that the, the, the food that's often presented to us is cheap, like fast food or processed food it's artificially cheap you know it goes back to what you're saying around the way in which these are typically companies that are getting subsidies from the government to make cheap food and so yeah in the the short term it may be cheap and it's artificially cheap but i want to encourage people to think about the long term you know it's expensive to have a decline in your health well before you should it's expensive to have the type of um unsustainable farming practices that many of these companies have that are ruining our environment it's expensive to you know have the heartbreak and the sadness yeah. of seeing the people you love getting sick and dying because they've been eating a lot of this process and, and crappy food. So I'm not in any way and there's nothing in me that blames people who might right. eat that way because I understand the complicated um, economic and geographic and physical Emotional. barriers that yeah. people have. To eating um, healthfully, but I wanna lead people on a journey. I think my cookbooks are a great way to show that. And I hear from people all over the country, you know, people respond to me, oh my God, like, you know, these basic staples that I grew up eating, I never imagined that I can eat them in this way that actually tastes really fresh and healthful. And there's some recipes in there that, you know, may not be accessible for people who are living on like a fixed income. Right. And I think it's always this balance for me about creating recipes that I feel, you know, are true to who I am and true to like my vision as an artist, but also keeping one eye on the communities that I want to have an impact on. And so, you know, I'm still figuring it out, you know, just what that balance is. But there are enough recipes in all of my books Mm -hmm. that, you know, folks who might be dealing with, um, you know, just economic marginalization, they can make good food for themselves and their families.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. I I mean, I relate to all those things you're saying as I have been doing a lot of cooking with people in community and training community members to become cooking teachers and and looking at like, what are your cultural foods and how can we. Look at like cooking them on a budget, cooking them when you don't maybe have an oven or, you know, limited equipment and also how to tweak things to make them healthy. So, like, I know you're, you're, you talk about getting back to like everyday food versus like soul food. That's like festival party food versus like soul food. That's everyday food. And mm-hmm. so how to support people in doing that. I've seen that like across all different communities. And mm-hmm. yeah,
0: I don't even like the term soul food because I just feel like when people think about soul food, you know, a lot of people immediately think about, like, the kind of big flavored meats and the fatty side dishes and the sugary desserts that you find at restaurants. Right. And I just talk about, like, traditional black food because these are the type of foods that you see in so many gardens and pantries and home kitchens of all the, the grandmas and the papas and, the you know, the elders who had more of an immediate connection with, like, the agrarian south right. or – might have migrated to the north and just, like, have those memories. And, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Like, that's the thing. When I think about my grandparents and the way that they grew food and and consumed it, you know, they didn't talk about it being local and seasonal and sustainable and (laughs) vegetable for it. This was just the way that they survived. (laughs) It was cheap for them to grow all their food. And it was healthy because they were eating food fresh from the garden. And so um, we get into this trap of thinking somehow as we progress technologically and you know modernized, that somehow you know things are getting better but we've seen you know in so many areas um that sometimes that just has the opposite effect that we think it will have
2: yeah Mm -hmm. word so speaking of your family you wrote your most recent book vegetable kingdom for your daughters Mila and Zenzi and what What was the impetus behind that? What were you trying to achieve with writing this book for them?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I intentionally took off a lot of time after Afro Vegan, which was published in 2014, so that I could spend time with my family. You know, we had two young children, and because writing a book often puts me, you know, back in my work shed, away from the family, not really. Participating in a lot of weekends and holidays because I'm writing and testing recipes and ideating and all that. I just knew I didn't want to be in that zone in in the earliest years of their life. And because we had created such a bond and spent so much time, it just was kind of organic that the book emerged to be something that was dedicated to them and really, you know, inspired by the type of foods that I was trying to feed them and help them to, you know, continue to fall in love with the diversity of the. Plants in the vegetable kingdom, and so um you know it's not a kid's book. But I always say the litmus test for the success of most of the recipes in the book was if my kids liked it. And you know there were times when they they let me know they weren't <laughs> feeling it. They look at me in dead eyes and spit it out. But you know that was that was uh, humbling and it was perfect. And so you know the book is the celebration of vegetables, and if. You know, my kids, like most of them, I'm sure most adults and other kids
1: will like them as well. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm your host, Erwin Lee. If you're enjoying this episode so far, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Your support empowers and inspires us to tell more stories and reach more people like you. In other words, you're helping us be us. Thank you for listening. Now back to the show.
2: You know, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was looking at this book, which is so beautiful, like I've, yeah. you know, I've been following your books, but like, it's amazing to watch the evolution of like the depth and the, I mean, there's so much depth in all your books, but just the, the beauty that's possible when you get to this stage of your career, when a publishing company will like pay for more photos and mm-hmm. like more support. It's, it's stunning. Thank you. Um, one of the things I was thinking about, cause like there was there were things in here that I had not heard of. And I, you know, love food and think about food pretty much nonstop. And so I was curious about, um, first of all, how you go about exploring the the complexity of the Black Diaspora of food and not getting in a place of kind of tokenizing it in in creating recipes and creating a book. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, great question. Because it's like so vast. You yeah, know? It's, it's vast. I mean... You know, a lot of it is research. A lot of it is just kind of serendipitous. Like, um, for example, there is this um, recipe in the book, which is um, roasted zucchini with this collard peanut pesto. And it's a dish from uh, the Central African country, Chad. And I I discovered this dish. It was just like, oh, they do this kind of like um, roasted zucchini and it was during the summer and we happened to have like a lot of zucchini and other summer squashes growing in our garden and I thought about ways in which I can like kind of add some oomph to the dish and I thought oh what if we actually made like a pesto using the collard greens and it's something I've done before and so I made this um, collard peanut pesto and you know a typical like Italian, and I don't even want to. I don't know if it's a pesto, if it's not pine nuts and right. basil and olive oil, but you know, it's an analog, and so I yes. think people can understand yeah. it. So I call it pesto, but um you know, typically you might use like olive oil, pine nuts, and then um basil for a pesto. And then this one we use collard greens that have been blanched, and that kind of takes some of the bitter edge off and you know, softens them up a bit. We use peanuts and we use peanut oil, mm-hmm. and um, it's oh, and then in lieu of what you know one might typically use in a um, traditional pesto, which is like parmesan cheese, we use some um, white miso.
2: Yes, I love miso and pesto. Yeah, it's and so you know good.
0: it gives it that depth, gives mm-hmm. it that creaminess, kind of like leans towards to that it. yeah that kind of umami that right. you get with the hard cheeses, and so um, yeah, I put that together, and then we ate it, and everybody loved it, and so. For me, it was this way of drawing on this traditional dish in an African country that is, you know... If you want to call it vegetarian, there there aren't any meat um, or animal products included in it. And that's part of my project of showing that there are these traditions throughout the African diaspora in Western Central Africa, in the Caribbean, in the American South, where, you know, meat wasn't in every single dish. I think people have these perceptions of like, oh, you know, like somehow... You know, having things devoid of of meat doesn't have anything to do with black people. And I'm like, no, like so many of these diets are like largely vegetable based. But then, you know, in my mind, it's also kind of creating this, um, you know, connection. Like, you know, I, I see this type of recipe creation as this anti-colonial act, because if you think about like the dispersion of black people throughout the globe because the forced dispersion, because of, you know, Europeans want to enslave them, then it's like my way of helping piece back some of these histories and, you know, peoples that have been dispersed. So you got like the collard greens, which are a staple in the American South. As well as peanuts. And um, I feel like it's just like everybody kind of mingling together on the plate and in your
2: mouth and your stomach. And
0: <laughs> it's just like yeah. a little spiritual party. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I love witnessing your creativity throughout the book and that, just like you just explained. When you say you discovered this recipe, that was my other curiosity is like, what are some of the ways that you are discovering or learning about um, new foods and new ways of cooking in the Black diaspora? Yeah.
0: So I've traveled. To many places in the black diaspora, but I've yet to travel to the African continent. But I'm excited about going there in the fall. I'm going to be going to um, Nairobi and Mombasa and probably some other parts of Kenya. And, you know, outside of my own travels, a lot of my um, inspiration comes from the home kitchens of friends who come from different parts of the um, African diaspora. Like my first introduction to African food was eating Ethiopian food when I was a child and I have some childhood friends in Memphis who are from Ethiopia and then they would invite me over and I had injeta and I had all these traditional dishes and you know I would watch my friend's mother cook and so that was a way for me to start learning about these traditions and you know living in New York I would go to the friends of you know, families from Haiti or folks from like, you know, Jamaica or wherever. And so a lot of it's been connecting with families and Mm -hmm. connecting with elders who show me different ways that they make food. But then some of it's research, you know, I'm combing through archives, I'm looking at different cookbooks, I'm looking at websites, and I'm learning more about these different food traditions and just thinking about how can I um, kind of like embrace them and make them my own and you know it's been a great process and I'm super excited about spending more time in the coming years on the African continent and bringing my family along as well yeah
2: that's great yeah when I went to Nigeria um, like 20 years ago my husband got initiated as a babalao in Oyo Nigeria I spent the whole time in the kitchen like when I was not in ritual with him I was Mm. in the kitchen (laughs) Mm. and the kitchen was actually like a tiny closet so we also cooked like on the little platform outside the kitchen Mm. but yeah that I mean that is like the best learning in the world just like how do people cut things, what tools are they using, what spices, and seeing even just, like, the effects of colonialism on, like, you know, they were making these little cookies out of nutmeg and flour, and I was like, oh, yeah, the Dutch were here with their nutmeg, you know, like, all Mm -hmm. these different... um, different things and then just watching like how people made pounded yam and just some things that were made like traditionally where people were still boiling yams and pounding it and Mm -hmm. then other things where people had like powdered flour and were like doing it in a pot and like but all of it right like it's all tradition and it's all culture and yeah that is like my greatest joy in the world is just being in the kitchen and watching and learning and helping if they let me definitely
0: (laughs) and you know what's um really interesting to me is seeing how like, the same ingredients that we might use in the American context will taste so different in different parts of the world. And, you know, like, when I'm traveling to the Caribbean and going to farms or going in the kitchens and seeing things that, you know, like cilantro, for example, like a fresh herb, and just experiencing how different it tastes uh, because of the soil, the conditions, the sunlight, Mm. you know, or, or whatever. You know, it's, like, because of our depleted soil okay. and you know environmental pollution and all that so um yeah traveling i mean when we take our children traveling or even just you know my one, one, my wife and i travel we are very intentional about doing something that connects with local people even yeah. if we're on like vacation just chilling like yeah, when we went too. to Hawaii for our honeymoon we spent a whole day on a tarot farm And we learned about, like, the history of tarot and the different uses, and we got a chance to go out and harvest them, and we Mm -hmm. made some dishes with that. And, you know, we certainly try to incorporate that when we're traveling with our children as well, just so you know that, you know, it's great being in another country, but being on some resort is not the the be-all, the end-all. And there are people who live here, and they have lives, and, you know, we want to try to connect and build relationships with people. Yeah,
2: yeah, I do that too. Absolutely, it's so important when travel. So one of the roles that you hold right now is as the chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And you're doing some amazing stuff there. Can you tell us a little like what what's some of the programming you're doing and what what is the objective of that work for you? Yeah.
0: Well, I'll say that I think if there's a thread throughout all my work, it's about building community, whether it's working with young people or writing books or the curation I do at the museum. I really want to bring people together and I'm very intentional about creating spaces that are open to all people, multi generational. Um, you know, I mean, I'm actually planning a, a an event for the fall that's specifically geared towards young people. And the work that I do at the museum, I, I feel like, is some of the most important work that I'm doing. And one of the reasons is because it's been so inspiring for other people around the country or other institutions, I should say. And we probably get, like, a dozen emails every month with institutions who've heard about the work and are interested in learning more. You know, not necessarily, uh, I mean, there have been some who are interested in kind of creating a full-on, like, chef residency, something similar, where there's a position and there's someone who's creating programming just around health, food, and farming issues. But I think more important, there are a lot of people who are just like, how can we include more food programming into our current work? You know, institutions that aren't necessarily dealing with food food and health and agriculture. And so that's super exciting, but, you know, the the work has ranged from, you know, intimate conversations with authors to panel discussions with, you know, scholars and journalists and activists and authors to dinners. We've actually had dinners inside the museum. Like we convert the lobby of the museum into a dining room. Um, we most recently partner with the Hotel St. Regis next door and, you know, use one of their big spaces where you can have a lot of people. And, you I mean, we're just doing some cool stuff.
2: (laughs) Can you talk a little about the ways that you've been trying to uplift women in the work you're doing and why that's important to you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm very clear about the way in which, you know, women aren't supported within the food industry. There's the, you know, gender wage gap, um, kitchens. If we talk about like restaurant kitchens, you know, kitchens are gendered spaces, you know, in the professional world. They're very male often hyper-masculine, sometimes violent spaces. And, you know, we have traditionally kind of framed the home as the kitchen is a woman's space. And so I've been very intentional about using my position, platform and privilege to uplift women. And it's been great having this position at the museum so that I can do things like, you know, our first program, like the first event that I did was the Black Women Food and Power. And this was a panel that I put together of some scholars and activists and a farmer And we talked about the historical and contemporary role of black women in the production, the distribution and the consumption of food and of food knowledge, because there are a lot of um, black scholars there and out in the world that we wanted to uplift their work, Um, you know. I, I I did a program in 2019, Black Women Food and Publishing. And this was really about celebrating the brilliant book projects that are coming out by black women. And so we had one woman who self-published a book. And we had another who has like a mid-sized publisher. And we had someone else who's working with a major publisher. And just really trying to demystify this process of, you know, being a published author. And there was just a room full of... Um, a diverse group of people but mostly women and a, a mostly black women and a lot of women who are interested in being a published author. And so I want to do all I can to create that space and uplift the work of black women and um ensure that you know folks just have opportunities in the yeah. same way that I had and the same kind of mentorship I had. Um I'll do the little bit that I can.
2: Yeah. So on that note I want to give you a chance before we finish just to shout out some other folks. So people who you find inspiring that you would like people to go check out.
0: Yeah. I like people to check out Leah Penniman, the farmer, the activist, the author, Ashanti Reese, the scholar and professor. I want people to check out Gail Myers, the farmer who started the Freedoms Farmers Market in the Bay Area and has been doing all this brilliant scholarship and activism and work to support black farmers for decades. I want to shout out Solange and her brilliant last album, the one with Stay Flow. That's my favorite song on there. I want to shout out like the unnamed, invisibilized black women and women of color who've been working in the food system, in the fields, in the kitchens, in the, the big houses, you know, just throughout history. There've been so much labor that black women and other women of color have put into feeding people. And I want to make sure that um, we always remember them and celebrate them, as well as the, you know, big names and the, the people who have a platform. Like, let us not forget those who don't.
2: Yes. Ashe, thank you so much.
0: Thank you.
1: From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. You can follow more of Brian's life and work on Instagram at Bryant Terry. This episode was shortened from the original, which you can listen to at The Table Underground wherever you find your podcasts. And follow them on Instagram, at The Table Underground. This episode was produced by Thomas Hagen and myself, Irwin Lee. Original recording by Tegan Engel. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to the following organizations for also supporting Brian's visit the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale, Sapir College, the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration, Love Fed New Haven, and People Get Ready Bookstore. Stay well, stay positive, and be kind to one another. We'll see you in two weeks.